from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to Romans chapter 5 this morning. Romans 5. <clears throat> and we are we are excited today because we're we're starting a new series, but this series is is on purpose. Uh, like like every series that we do here, we do it with some intentional focus on things. And if you're new to us, what you can know is that our sermon series are usually anywhere from 18 months to two years in the planning in the sense of as we as an elder board discuss what we're hearing and seeing and the dialogue we're having with our church body and what we're seeing in the culture at large, what are things that our church needs to grow in and hear? And this series is one like that. The series is going to take us through some of the most theologically dense yet most encouraging chapters in the Bible in Romans 5 through 8. We're going to talk about this theme, which is united with Christ, because that's exactly what these, these chapters teach us. They show us what it means to be saved by faith, to be justified before God, and shows us what it means to be united with Christ. And in a sense, these chapters are about our identity as Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a believer in Christ? And there are, there are several reasons that we could give you for why we're doing this series, but let me just give you a few of them right now. When, when the pandemic of 2020 hit, like many of you, one of the many challenges that I, were, I wrestled with personally, and our elder board talked about these things openly, was the issue of our identity. And here's what I found. I found an internal struggle in my soul with two things. My American status as a American citizen and what God might call me to do sometimes felt like they were at odds with one another. Did I identify, and I ask myself this question often, um, did I identify in, in primary as, as an American Christian or as a Christian who happened to be an American? And I ask myself that question a lot. I was primarily challenged with my primary allegiances. Where did they lie? I didn't like that some of my rights were being taken away. I didn't like some of the things that I was being asked to do or not to do. I found myself asking this question more times than not. Am I committed to Christ, what he's calling me to do, or am I committed to my nationality and what I feel like I want to do? And honestly, in talking with many of you in the church, uh, some... Encouraging conversations, some very challenging conversations. I found that some of you were battling through the same things. Wrestling through, man, where, where does this stuff land as a Christian? And how do I respond to these particular issues? And what we found was these are identity crises that people were having. Where does their primary allegiance lie? Where, what do they primarily identify as? And what kind of leads them in the decisions that they may or may not make? But then as the pandemic began to fade a little bit and we begin to open up more, I noticed, we noticed something else going on in, in our own church. We noticed that many Christians stopped coming out of their shells. 
You know, one of the things that the pandemic did for us was, it, I don't know about you, it gave us a lot more family time. I mean, my wife made a comment here recently like, boy, it'd be nice to kind of go back to the pandemic day. You know what I mean? We could kind of hang out together. There's nothing to do besides be at home and, you know, be around each other, do projects. And there's so many. I mean, I, I think I built, you know, four garden boxes. I mean, that is a great. My wife's like, we got a lot of honeydews done. I mean, it was awesome. Um, but one of the things that happened was as the pandemic began to loosen, was Christians found safety and comfort in these small little circles. And one of the things that happened was we started getting comfortable with interacting with those we were comfortable with, and we became comfortable with not interacting with those who may disagree with us. Matter of fact, what happened was instead of interacting with people face-to-face in real-life conversations, we reacted with one another in the echo chamber of social media. And I'm not sure, that I, I think it's always fascinating how we put out what we think of these hot takes on social media, and we forget to realize that most of our followers, probably 97% of the followers on social media, are people that actually agree with you anyway. So when you post this hot take on social media, you're getting something from somebody that basically goes, yeah, I basically agree with you. And we're having these wrestling matches with one another over the same topic. And we don't really hear from people that really, really do disagree and they disagree for good reasons. And I notice more people, Christians especially, begin to back up from real flesh and blood, face to face conversations with people that might disagree with us because of fear. Some because of anger, some because of uncertainty about what might happen in this conversation. And I notice more people beginning to identify more with their political ideas and opinions without any reference to how do those things line up with my identity as a Christian. Matter of fact, I remember having some conversations with people, and as they were sharing their opinions with me, I said, you know, I, I may agree with you on those opinions, but I have a question I've been asking myself. Where does this opinion line up with God's word? And more than one time or not, I heard somebody say, does that really matter right now? And I was like, actually, it matters a lot right now. <laughs> That's an identity issue. Where do you see yourself? And you tie all this into our work as pastors and elders, and there's not a week that goes by that we don't talk with somebody who's struggling in their faith. I mean, this world is hard. The battle is real. you got, I mean, gas prices alone are real, right? And they are hard. Food prices are challenging. People are discouraged. People are wondering, why. where is this world heading? And they're struggling as Christians knowing, what is my role in this world? And how do I interact with this world? And some are really depressed to the degree that they don't want to get out of bed in the morning. And I've spent a lot of times over the last few years, in the last three years, more than I can count... Uh, in my last 33 years of Christian ministry of, of expressing to people and reminding them regularly more than I can ever remember of God's work for them in Christ and God's vast work that's universal that started before time began and will end at Revelation chapter 7 before the throne of God. And keeping people focused on not the myopic moment that they're in, but looking beyond themselves to see that there is a God who is at work and he will utilize a pandemic for his great glory. And people have struggled with their identity in Christ. People have doubted their salvation. They have wrestled with um, the realities of this world and how they are to face them living in a Genesis 3 world and how they as a Christian interact with this stuff. 
And so it's through these past few years of Christian ministry that we, as a, as a, interacted with our church, watched our community, that we as elders believe that we need this series right now. We need to talk about what does it mean to be united with Christ and what, and how does that affect the way we see our lives, the way we interact with other people, and the way we even interact with this world that is, that's a Genesis 3 world that is filled with sin and, and, and disagreements and frustrations. How do we deal with all that stuff? And, and the beauty is Romans 5 through 8 covers all of that. And so that's what we're going to cover in the next few months. We're going to cover this through the summer. And then once we land in September, we're going to start a series through the minor prophets. So that's what we're going to do. So stand with me. We're going to start in Romans 5, 1 through 11. And if you're new with us, we stand because this is the reading of God's word. We want to honor God as we read his word by standing and receiving it. So this is this is God's word. Romans 5. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one may one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and as we read your word and as we study your word, would you open our eyes to the wonder of what you have done through Christ that is objective, that is past tense, and that is real today for us as Christians. And then help us to live from this life for the glory of God and the advancement of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, if you're new with us, you should have got an outline when you walked in the door. The outline always has a, usually has a big idea at the top. And here's the big idea of the sermon today that I hope we will see. And it's, it's pretty simple. Jesus Christ has changed our relationship with God forever. Jesus Christ has changed our relationship with God forever. We will see that as we go throughout this text. But since we're starting in Romans chapter 5, I think it's important for us to just ask a question. Where has Paul been in chapters 1 through 4 by looking at the first point in your outline, which is two ways to live? Because Paul has been discussing something, getting us to Romans 5, that I think we've got to recognize first. And these will all come up on the screen for you, I believe. In Romans chapter 1... Paul reminded the Roman Christians of the power of the gospel and why it was needed. 
In verse 16, he wrote that the gospel is the power of God into salvation for those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he said in verse 17 that the righteous shall live by faith. And then in verse 18, he then showed us how people have suppressed the truth about God that they've known, and we are locked into sin. In chapter 2, Paul then begins to show us that no one is excused from the judgment of God. In verse 1, he made it clear that we're all without excuse because of our hard hearts and our unrepentant hearts, and we're storing up for ourselves the wrath of God. In verse 15, he told us that the law of God is written on our hearts to such a degree that our consciences are accusing us or excusing us. They're revealing to us whether or not we're right with God or not. And then in chapter 3, he begins to summarize our dilemma quite well, and yet begins to show us God's solution. In verses 9 through 11, he said that we're all under sin. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. Even though in your Christian culture you might hear people say, these people are seekers of God or seeking after God, even though they're not Christians, the Bible nowhere indicates that, that anybody is seeking after God unless the God of the universe is seeking after them. In verses 19 and 20, Paul wrote that the whole world is accountable to God. And no one is justified in God's sight by simply doing good works or obeying the law. And then in verses uh, verses 21 and 22, he began to give us a glimpse of God's plan to deal with this dilemma. That through the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ, that the prophets and the law, they both pointed ahead that this day was coming. And in verses 23 and 24, we read the remarkable statement that all of us would know, for all have fallen short of the glory of God, but we are justified or made right with God before God through the, through Jesus' work of redemption. And then Paul summarized God's work on our behalf in verse 28 when he said this, we have been justified through faith apart from the works of the law. Then in chapter 4, This famous chapter, Paul begins to show us how justification by faith alone played itself out in Abraham's life, who was the father of the faith. In verse 3, we read that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In verses 21 and 22, we're told that Abraham was fully convinced that God would do what he promised, and that's why the faith that he had was counted to him as righteousness. And then Paul closes his chapter in verses 23 and 24 by applying Abraham's faith or example to us. Those who have put our faith in Jesus by saying that God will count us righteous because of our faith in Jesus. That God raised him from the dead if we believe that God gave, that God gave Jesus to die for our sins and raise him from the dead for our justification. So in chapters 1 through 4... And I would encourage you to do this sometime. Get an audio Bible out and just read chapters 1 through 4 in one sitting. Take you about 15 minutes. And you will basically hear Paul asking a question and, and really laying out two ways to live life. Paul's point is we're all under guilt because we have not obeyed God. We all know it. We all feel it in our bones that something is not right with us and God. Our consciences speak to us about it on a regular basis. Something gnaws at us that we're just not right with God. 
And it's why we're always trying to improve ourselves, because you don't try to improve something that's perfect. We all know we're not right. It's why we're working so hard to be happy and satisfied with his life, because it's so frustrating. We all kind of get it. It's why if you were to Google self-help on the Internet, you're going to be blown up with examples and ideas of how to improve yourself. It's why if you went into a bookstore that's still in existence today, you'd find the largest part of the bookstore is the self-help section. Because we all know that we've fallen short of God. We all know that we're imperfect. We know that something's not right. And we make excuses for it like, well, nobody's perfect. The question is, how are we going to fix the problem? And Romans 1 through 4 challenges us with a question. You're not right with God. You have sinned against God. You've been separated from God. You're an enemy of God. You don't seek after God. You're a target of God's wrath. How are you going to fix the problem? What is the solution for the problem? And basically, the apostle lays out two ways that we can choose to live. One is we would trust in our ability, our hard work, our obedience to the law of God, or we're going to trust in Jesus' hard work performance and his ability to obey the law. Do we have what it takes to make ourselves right with God, or does God have what it takes to make us right with God? That's the question that is being posed in in chapters 1 through 4. And what Romans 1 through 4 says is, it is impossible for us to make ourselves right with God. We do not have what it takes. We cannot make ourselves clean. We cannot be freed by ourselves of the guilt and shame before God that we all feel. It is impossible. We cannot work hard enough. We cannot perform good enough. We won't ever be perfect enough to be made and declared righteous before God. That's what Romans 4 leaves you with. But it also leaves you with something else. That even though we are in this state... We are not hopeless because the God of the universe does have what it takes. The God of the universe has given us Christ, the good and powerful good news of his gospel, that he has come to live as we should have lived, die in our place, and rise again from the dead for our justification. And only faith in that Savior can save us from the wrath of God to come. So here's the question that Romans 4 just, I mean, it confronts you with when you read it. Are we going to trust in ourselves or are we going to trust in Jesus to be made right with God? In reality, there are only two ways to live this life. You will either trust in yourself, which will lead you to eternal punishment, or you will trust in Christ, which will lead you to eternal life. There's only two ways to live. And Romans 1 through 4 leads you down this road. But it also does something else. It it leads us with an assumption. And Paul does this. You're going to notice this when we get into the text. The assumption that Paul makes to the people he's writing to in Rome and the assumption he makes to all preachers who would preach from the book of Romans is that the people who are reading this book have faith in Christ. The assumption that Paul makes in the book of Romans is those reading the letter have put their faith in Jesus's work on their behalf. And that's leads to our second point, which is since we have been justified, we'll see this in verse chapter five, verses one through four. But again, notice the assumption that Paul makes to the reader. 
since we have been justified. See, Paul's understanding is clear. Those who put their faith in Christ's work on their behalf have been made right with God and have been declared righteous by God and before God. The entire section from chapter 5 through 8, and we could even make the argument from 5 onward to the rest of the book, is that those who have been justified by faith have all of the things that Paul's going to discuss in chapter 5 and forward. Since we have been justified... In other words, the things we're going to talk about today are things that Paul sees as already accomplished because we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And there's three of them in the text that you're going to notice that Paul makes very clear. Notice verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. See, even though we were enemies, as verse 10 says very clearly, because of Jesus, there is no more animosity between God and us. Since we have been justified, we have peace with God. There's no fighting between us and God anymore. And notice something as well. This is not the peace of God. This is peace with God. See, the peace of God comes from being at peace with God. So Paul is talking about primary peace, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 11 sums this up probably the best when Paul said it this way, that we've been reconciled to God. So we put our faith in Christ that he is the one we are believing in, that God will fully, we're fully convinced that God will accomplish everything he promised through Christ. We were, we are restored to a place of favor with God through Jesus. But then he goes on and says in verse 2, we have obtained access to this grace and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now on the screen, I've also put Romans 3.23 there because I want you to notice this fascinating transition. In Romans 3.23, we're told that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, listen, through faith in Christ, we have obtained access to the presence of God, the grace of God, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Meaning, in Christ, you are no longer falling short of the glory of God. You have access to the glory of God. You have an entrance to the glory of God. You have a happy certainty of the glory of God. Meaning no longer, no longer do you have, are you outside the throne room? You have access into the grace of God. Access to grace means we have access to God. We no longer dread the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it's actually Christ in us who is our only hope of glory. But then in verse three, Paul goes on because he shows us the impact of our justification being made right with God on the realities of life. This is one of the things I love about what Paul does is Paul never takes our theology and keeps it in the clouds. He always takes our theology and he puts it in shoe leather. See, he says we rejoice in our sufferings or our trials or our tribulations because they're producing character in us. See, without Christ, I hope you're aware that that there is no hope in our sufferings. You know what sufferings are for the non-Christian? They're a reminder that one day there will be more suffering 
and it will go on for eternity. Do you know what sufferings are for the Christian? They're a reminder that one day there will be no suffering. They're to produce in you a hope that says, one day this will all be done. See, sufferings in Christ shape us to be more like Jesus. They are, they're, they're a place where we, gives us hope for the future. You can only have that if you are in Christ, if you are justified. Now with these three things that Paul shows us in Romans 5, 1 through 4, I just want you to notice a couple of things about these things that Paul mentions here about our justification. I want you to notice first how past tense these are. Notice in your Bibles, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. We have obtained access to God. We have received reconciliation with God. In other words, in the mind of God, in the courtroom of God, on the, on the docket of God's laws, it says this, this stuff is over. It's finished. God has declared that we are justified once and for all by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's no debate in the court of heaven about these issues, even though you might be debating them in your heart. There's no change in these things in the court of heaven because God has declared them to be true. They're past tense. In God's mind, they're done. But also notice something else in this text. Notice the emphasis on Christ's work Not our work in this justification. Notice, through Jesus Christ, through him, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It just fills the text. See, the work of our justification is done because of Jesus. Meaning, your justification is not dependent on your love for Jesus. It's dependent on, did he live perfectly and die in your place and rise again from the dead? And the answer to that is, yes. But then I want you to notice how objective this is. I found this quote by Leon Morris to be really helpful, and I want you to follow it very clearly because I think it speaks to us today. Paul speaks of peace with God, and he is not referring to a subjective feeling, but to the objective fact that the justified are no longer enemies of God, but are at peace with him. The inward peace that follows is very important, but it is not the primary thought here. The justified person is no longer tormented by questions of his relationship with God arising from the fact that he is a sinner. Sinner though he is. He is at peace with God because of what God has done for him. Christian, let that settle in your soul for just a moment. Let that sink deep into your heart. Sinner though you are, as a child of God, looking to Christ, as the one who represents you before God, you are at peace with God and you have obtained Access into God's presence and you have hope in the glory of God and your sufferings are not in vain. Why? Because they're reminding you there's a day to come when all this will be over. That, that is amazing grace. 
See, that's amazing grace. You can, it's okay. You can clap. I mean, it's okay, right? I mean, what, what amazing news this is. See, you're no longer lingering outside of God's house, looking in the window, just wishing that you could have a seat at his table, looking down the road at wrath to come. No, you, you are in the house with a seat at the table with your God welcoming you and calling you to be his very own. What amazing news. And this is your status, listen, forever. Do you see how objective this is? See, this this didn't matter how good looking you are. Or if you're having a bad hair day or a bad hair life. Right. It it doesn't matter how your breath smelled this morning or listen, or if you go to work tomorrow and you don't get all your tasks accomplished. It doesn't even matter. Listen, if this morning on the way to church that you had one of those family moments with your children and you lost your living mind and you walk into the door wondering, I wonder if I'm still saved. This is because of what Christ has done. This is objective. It's not based on how you feel. This moment, this morning, you may not feel like you are at peace with God. That doesn't matter to your feelings because God has declared in Christ, if you're in me, you, you are at peace with me. But Paul's not done yet. See, we could stop here, couldn't we, this morning and just stop and worship and just get enough. I mean, this would be more than enough, right? We're going to notice something that Paul does in the book of Romans that I, I love Paul about is Paul says, as if we would say, is there any more to discuss about this? He would say, absolutely, yes. And he just kind of keeps on writing. It's as if it couldn't get any better. Paul says, let me just keep it coming. And you'll see this in verses 5 through 10, that Paul shows God's love poured into us. This is a change on the screen. It's changed from your outline. I didn't like the preposition that I dropped in there. It's actually pre- it's actually poured into us. And I want you to see this very clearly in verses 5 through 10. See, at the end of Paul's discussion on sufferings bringing hope, he mentioned that hope does not put us to shame. And notice what he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, what we have a tendency to do is we take verses five through three through five. We pull them out of their context and we say, let's talk about suffering and what suffering produces. However, that would not be faithful to this text. The discussion on suffering cannot be disconnected from the discussion on our justification. See, suffering produces character because we've been justified by faith. And character produces hope that does not disappoint because we've been justified by faith in Jesus. So when we read that God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, we must also read because we've been justified by faith. In other words... The love of God being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us is a fruit of our justification. Now, in Romans 8, we're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit's role in our life. But just for a moment, realize what Paul is saying to us, that the Holy Spirit, the moment we believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit is deposited into our hearts, and he is the presence of Christ. And you know what he's doing in your life? He is reminding you every day that you are a child of God. 
And this text tells us something that he's doing. He is reminding us every day of the love of God being poured into our hearts. Now, from verse 6 onward, Paul then reveals what this love is. Now, probably most of us, we'd think the love of God being poured into our hearts means that God is pouring his love into us so we can then go love like God loves. That's true, but that's not true in this text. This text is revealing something else. That's not the primary issue here. Paul is talking about the love of God as seen through Christ being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is reminding us that we are loved by God because of what Christ has done for us. Notice how he does this. Verse 6, while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7 People don't die for good, righteous people, much less for good people, much less for bad people. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now just for a moment, stop there and notice the terms that Paul uses to describe us. While we were yet sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. Do you see the terms? While we were yet weak, Christ died for the ungodly. He he describes us as weak, as ungodly, as sinners. I mean, just for a you know a little object lesson today, go out, you're going to go to lunch probably at some point today. You're probably starving right now, thinking about where you're going. And just go to a restaurant today, have your waitress or waiter come over, and as they get to your table, just say, hey, we learned a lesson today at church. We want to tell you what you are. You're weak, you're sinful, and you're ungodly. And just see how that goes for you. <laughs> Do that after they've served your food to you. It probably will not go well for you, Right? But then ask yourself another question. The people that you might describe around you or outside of you that are weak, ungodly, and sinful, how would you treat them? And then take it a little further and realize that this is how God describes you. And notice how God treated you. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. See, do you see yourself in these terms that God, the God of the universe, saw you as weak? No ability to save yourself. No ability to make yourself right with God. You do not have the strength of what God requires of you. And yet he still comes after you with the strength of his son. That he saw you as ungodly, separated from his great grace and not a recipient of his love. Yet God came after you with his son to pay the redemption price of his blood for you. See, I mean, what remarkable news. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, and then Paul just continues. He just continues to throw out the flood of God's love on us in verses 9 and 10 by giving us these much more statements. Verse 9, since we've been made right with God through the blood of his son Jesus, how much more are we saved from God's wrath? Verse 10, if God reconciled us while we were his enemies, much more now are we saved by Jesus' resurrection life. See, Leon Morris put it this way, and I think you should pay attention to this one. How much more introduces us to an argument from the greater to the less? 
If Christ has done the great work of justifying sinners, dying for God's enemies, listen to this, he will certainly perform the comparatively simple task of keeping those who are now God's friends. If God justified you by sending his son, you can guarantee he will keep you to the end. Again, notice the terms. We have been made right with God through the blood of Christ, which indicates we were not right with God, and Jesus made us right with God. And being saved from his wrath means that his wrath was at one time aimed at us, and we were heading toward his wrath, but Jesus made it possible for us to never taste his wrath. We were once enemies of God, destined for eternal death, but not anymore. We're recipients of His grace, destined for eternal life. Amen. See, what, what amazing news. See, what Paul tells us in these verses is something we should never ignore. Never ignore. We were weak, ungodly, sinners, unreconciled to God, enemies of God, targets of God's wrath. But since we have been justified, past tense, by faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous, past tense. We are reconciled to God, past tense, and we are given eternal life. Why? Because God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, that will preach. That will preach. And that, that love, that love, that love has been poured into your hearts as a child of God through the Holy Spirit given to you because you have been, you have been justified by faith in Christ. Do do you see? I mean, what amazing grace. So, so listen. Why would we ever sit around doubting God's love for us? See, if you wonder today, does God love me? The answer is a resounding yes. Yes, he loves you. And Jesus' death on the cross 2,000 years ago is the evidence and the only proof you will ever need. 1 John 3.16, if you want to take a biblical definition and put the picture of what love is, it'll show the death of Jesus. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Do you see how objective this is? This isn't, well, I kind of feel like he died for me today. Or it's a great day, the sun's out, it's going to be 900 degrees outside, right? We're going outside to hell on earth, he doesn't love me today. That's not how this works. This is not based on how you feel or, or, or how, or if we feel about God's love. No, God says this has happened. And you see how historical this fact is. That God says, I demonstrated my love toward you. See, this means you never have reason to question God's love for you ever again. You don't have to doubt your position before God if you have a seat at his table ever again. You have access to God every moment of your life for the rest of your life. If you trust in Jesus. That, that's amazing news. I mean, this is good news when you're, you're short some money at the end of a long month. God's love is not revealed to you in the size of your bank account. 
It's good news when a pandemic stops the world and your rights are stripped away. Guess what hasn't been stripped away? Your status before God. What remarkable news. It's good news when the political vote doesn't go your way, or better yet, it does go your way. Neither one of them say, God loves me more or less. The cross says that. It's good news when the health diagnosis is not good news. It's good news when there's relational conflict and somebody has said things about you and your character that you had no idea of and existed. And you begin to question whether or not you are a child of God because of what they've said. Because God has already declared you to be a child of God. And the evidence is he loves you and he sent his son for you. It's good news when your dreams aren't realized. See, all, all the things that are the promises in this text are since we have been justified by faith. So we, ha- we have to ask, and I have to ask, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you trust in him to be your representative solely before God? Or are you trusting in yourself that maybe one day you'll get there and you'll tell him how good you were and all the different things that you did. And you're hoping that's going to be enough. See, do you believe in Christ's work? And as a Christian, listen, are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised through Christ? That the seat at the table is secure because of Christ. That your adoption is secure because of Christ. That your eternal life is secure because of Christ. Are you fully convinced that your status before God is dependent on Christ's love for you, not your love for Christ? Are you fully convinced of that? Because listen, if you are, if you are, then this is your primary identity in Christ. You have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. You have obtained access to God and you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You rejoice in your sufferings knowing they're producing endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, the happy certainty that will never disappoint you because the love of God has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who is revealing to you every day of your mundane little life that God loves you and Jesus is the demonstration of that. And you understand your status before God, your identity before God and in your life is primarily this. You are loved by God more than you could ever imagine and you're more forgiven than you could ever dream. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need this good news. We need this good news poured, just continuously reminded to us. Would you help us as Christians to listen up to the Holy Spirit daily? Who is reminding us that we are your children when the world isn't going the way we want. When our lives don't seem to match Would you help us as Christians to truly believe in the truth that if we do sin against you, that we can go to you and confess our sin and you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and you will empower us to go change. 
help us to live in the good of our justification. I pray for Christians today that are living in present tense and they're not living in past tense. I pray for Christians that are living in subjective feelings, not in objective truth. Elevate our minds to the historical objective facts since we have been justified. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have obtained access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we rejoice in our sufferings, which produce endurance, which produce character, which produces hope that does not disappoint Because the love of Christ, the love of God, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. And you demonstrated your love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, God. Father, turn the heart of the non-Christian this morning to put their faith in this King. To trust in you, not their own works. That they might be saved from their own sin and from the wrath to come. And they might experience love and grace and mercy and peace and eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.